So we were at a park last night, Sherry, and there was a basketball court attached to the park where we were, and there was a guy shooting hoops by himself. He was pretty into it, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah. How would you describe there that were like, gentleman? That gentleman thought there were other players on the <laughs> court, too, <laughs> that he was defending the ball from. He, yeah, yeah, shots that got slapped out of his hand so they didn't quite make it in the basket. He was either reliving high school moments or, you know, he was reenacting the NBA game that he just recently watched or, or it was the meth. Yeah. I'm not sure. But he had no shame about that. We, the, the walk we were on took us right past his basketball court. I was actually a little nervous to walk past him. Were you? Yeah. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, we just I thought he kept would walking. turn and start screaming at us or something. Yeah. But he had he paid no attention to us. Not at all. He was really? into his in thing. And you know, I I definitely don't like we, we don't know anything about that guy's story. We had just seen him and, and I, I hope that there was not a mental illness involved. I hope that he was just into it and certainly the last thing we would do is make fun of a mental illness. But he was really, really into his thing. And I remember as we walked away thinking, and he was he was an adult. He was, I don't know, in his 30s or something. Yeah. yeah. I remember thinking, gosh, I wish I like was that open and that that calm. And, well, he, he wasn't calm, but that, um, you know. Unaware. I know what you think, unaware. I think he was completely unaware that anybody was around him. I think he was so He into, was in the zone, like Michael. Was, yeah, he was so into that. Like Michael full Jordan. Court. It wasn't a full court, but I mean, it was. Too, but he was playing full court. But he court. was playing full he was court. Going both sides. Yeah, yeah, and there were people, you could tell the way and the intensity he was playing. There were other people on that court playing with him and against him. It reminded so, me of sometimes you see kids, like when they're young, so playing. So imaginative. Way. So imaginative. That's the word I was yeah, looking for. Yeah, so into it that they're just talking to themselves and. And just not a care in the world for what anybody else thinks. Mm-hmm. I love that. We, you know, we hear a lot from people, hey, you guys talk about all this stuff and you share your deep, dark secrets. You guys must not care what people think about you. And the fact is, that's not true. We do care. And sometimes it's harder than others. Yes, I don't have a filter and I'm willing to talk about stuff that many others aren't. But I, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have played ball like that guy was. Right. I was jealous of that. So there are there are levels of uh, of coming outedness or being openness, you know. Yeah, I'm not a, open about everything. Pretty right. Pretty close though. Yeah. Yeah. So that guy, that guy playing ball, you know, kind of made me think of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about, you know, everyone's got their own comfort level when it comes to talking about their stuff. And letting it out a little bit at a time is the way to go for some people. Some people want to jump in with both feet. It's got to be comfortable, though. You've got to be comfortable in your own skin when you're expressing and sharing the truth, the deep, dark secrets, the the stuff that you've gone through to get, to get healthy for healing. So... The first thing right off the top, I can't, I can't not mention this. Our, our book came out this week. 
when when this podcast is released, it'll actually be next week from this week when we're recording this. So the book came out on September twenty third. Let's just throw some dates. <laughs> Let's just throw a make, date. That didn't make any sense. So the book came next out last week. week. You're right. The book came so, out last week. If you were listening to this right in the week that it came out. Uh, the book's called Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Marriage, And it we are super excited because it was the number one new release on Amazon in Alcoholism Recovery. So we got a great launch. A bunch of really wonderful supporters that bought that book right away. If, if you'd like to learn more or potentially buy it for yourself, just go to SoberEvolution.org. .com was way too expensive, so I bought .org, <laughs> SoberEvolution. You know, just real quick, funny story. What? I went on SoberEvolution.com like two months ago, and it was a site, and it was a lame site that, you know, I mean, I do our own web stuff, so ours is kind of lame, but my ours is better than this one. This one was really lame, and it was just... Like some guy that I think he was, I think he was uh, selling, um, I think he was a therapist. I can't remember. I don't remember what he was. But the site was lame. So I emailed the guy and said, hey, can we, would, would you be willing to sell this domain? It doesn't look like you got a lot going on with it. And he never responded. But now the domain is for sale for thousands and thousands of dollars. Whereas when I, you know, approached him, he wasn't. So I think he thought, oh, somebody's interested. This must be in high demand. I'm not going to talk directly to this person. I'm going to see what I can get for it. Fool, yeah. I just bought the .org. I'm not spending. I was going to give him a couple hundred bucks, but. Hmm. And since we are a nonprofit, a 501c3.org fits. So SoberEvolution.org if you're interested in the book. So last week on the Intoxicated Podcast, we had Jane. And Jane came on and told her story about being the loved one of an alcoholic. If you haven't listened to that one, I recommend you go back and listen to it. It's one of our most downloaded episodes ever already. It it was really impactful. It's such a tough, tough line to walk when you are the loved one of an alcoholic and you want to talk about your story because your story automatically is the story of the alcoholic too. So talking about it and being open about it is so difficult without without hurting the other person. And and Jane's still married to her husband and she loves her husband and and she is awesome because she talked to him before she came on the Intoxicated podcast and they agreed that it was okay that she did this. So she was being as respectful as possible but with with his permission. And I want to share some follow-up from that episode. The day that it came out, they actually shared publicly the episode and shared with their their corner of the world, the, all the people that they are in contact with, that Jane had done this podcast episode and that people should listen to it. And a bunch of people did. And literally hundreds of people reacted and around 100 or so, I don't know how many exactly, contacted Jane and her husband directly. And I don't want to say anything more because it's their story. And I, I don't want to say how it was that they shared it or who shared it or or get into a ton of the details because that's that's for Jane and her husband to control that story. But it is fair to say that it was life-changing for both of them, like majorly life-changing. And coming out about this stuff, 
it has so many positives. There's some difficult things about it too. Certainly, you hurt some some feelings or some some people aren't excited, you know, to know. Like for instance, often what happens is older people in the family, like parents and grandparents, are like, "Ah, you're shaming the family name because you're admitting to this awful scourge of the earth disease, or or not even disease, just weakness. You're showing that." We aren't perfect. I don't do that. But even with the downsides and the relationship repair that has to be done in situations like that, it is totally worth it. Coming out and being being upfront about alcoholism and all the ramifications. And I want to talk about that today because I think I think it's one of the two things that has to happen for society to change, for culture to change, for us to cure alcoholism. And I want to get your perspective on it as well, Sherry. So, like I said, I think, in my opinion, after being in this for, for quite a while now and lots of research and reading and talking to so many people, I'm convinced that there are two things we need to do to cure alcoholism. And when I talk about alcoholism, I'm talking about the 15 million plus people that suffer from the disease, which is, that's more people than suffer from cancer. So this is no small thing. There are three three million plus people a year that die from alcohol-related causes, according to the World Health Organization. And I say that's BS. I say it's way, way, way more than that. Because, you know, deaths from alcohol are not reported as deaths from alcohol. They're reported as whatever the, the concurrent thing that happens is, for instance, we've talked about this before, but you and I have a very good friend whose mother died of cancer, we all thought. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for years we, we were sad. She was, I don't know, how old was she when she died? I don't really know. Because she looked really, probably. she had like such a little glow and light about her that she always seemed to permeate youth. Like She, she, she might giddy. have been in her 70s, but I, think, yeah, I thought I she was in her late, 60s. I think she was late 60s. Yeah. But after she passed, you know, we all, oh, cancer, that's terrible. It takes so many yeah, lives. Yeah, she suffered from cancer for a couple of years. That's right. But once I came out to her daughter, who's like, like we said, one of our best friends, about my alcoholism, her daughter said to me, that's what killed my mom. And we said, what? I thought cancer killed your mom. And she said, oh, no. She had a very treatable form of cancer, but her liver was too damaged for it to tolerate the chemo or the radiation. So... We couldn't give her the treatment that, again, very treatable form of cancer. So on the death certificate, it says cancer, but it was the liver damage from alcoholism that really... Side effects of the alcohol that prevented yeah. the the care, the proper care and cure, yeah. potential cure for that. I mean, it's, it's just... Dis- it, I think it's because alcohol can damage so many it's different true. parts of the body, and then people just think it's other things, yes. like... It's a leading cause of cancer. It's a leading cause of heart disease. Alcohol is. Mm -hmm. It leads to obesity, diabetes, all this, all the stuff that's killing people. It's really alcohol or, you know, just alcohol leads to the poor diet that, that kills people. So it's in the mix with so many more than 3 million deaths a year worldwide. I mean, I, I just guarantee it. But so I think there's so much focus on recovery in this country. Once somebody's got this disease of alcoholism, how do we help them recover? Once someone is the loved one of an alcoholic, how do we help that loved one recover? These are both important topics. 
I mean, AA has been around for however 80 plus years. The big book was written just over 80 years ago. And that's where all the focus is. You get this disease. Oh, let's get it cured. But there's almost no talk about prevention anymore. And it's really sad. It's like we've just accepted that 15 million sufferers, which again, I think that's way too low, is that's just part of life in America. So deal with it. You know, we're, we're doing, it's all over the press and everyone has an opinion and it's front of mind in every possible way about COVID right now, which this past week we, we crossed over 200,000 deaths in the United States. It is a big deal. It's tragic. It's tragic. And I don't want to get political, so we'll just leave it at that. It's tragic. But, you know, alcoholism kills a ton more people. And it impacts a ton more people economically. And it impacts a ton more people health-wise. But we just don't even talk about it anymore. It's just an accepted thing. Once you get that, let's treat it. But let's not talk about the fact that there's a bunch of alcoholics to begin with. And that's where I think we need to go. If we're going to fix this epidemic, we got to talk about prevention. So I want to talk about cigarettes really quick. I know the the comparison between alcohol and cigarettes gets made fairly often, but I did some research and I studied what actually turned the tide on cigarettes. Because if you remember, Sherry, before our lifetime, so you don't remember, I guess, but you but you're aware. <laughs> oh, did you? You need a little caffeine this morning, I think, to get your mouth and brain working. Yeah. Probably so a good before idea. my lifetime, do you remember? Rem- yeah. When you remember before your lifetime. Um, but you are a year and a half older than me, so the kids yes. always, you always get the shots about, Mama, what was it like when the dinosaurs were here? Right, well, that's how they became extinct. They smoked cigarettes, so. Yes. That's how we get the kids oh, great to Great tie-in. Yeah. Way to bring me back far on side. topic. Far side. Oh, really? Um, yeah, far side comics. Mm. Well, so, so cigarettes, the... The, what turned the tide culturally, societally, from the research that I did was, I mean, it's the obvious thing, right? We started tying death and lung cancer to smoking and and then repeat. We did it over and over again. There was a Surgeon General report and that kind of slowed the growth of the number of people that smoked, but it didn't really, you know, didn't, it didn't reverse the trend. Yeah. And then there was another report and that that kind of was the peak of the people that smoked. And then there was another report and, okay, it started to creep down a little. But we humans, you know, we get pretty set in our ways. And we don't want to listen to outside information. We just want to believe what we want to believe. So it took a repetitive effort. But but in each one of the, you know, the cases of, oh, here's a new study. Here's some new findings. Here's some new stuff. Here's something you've got to believe. The link was... Cigarette smoking causes death. These are the two things we're tying together. And then we did it over and over and over again. So I'm just a huge believer that we have got to tie alcohol, not alcoholism. We have got to tie alcohol to death and do it over and over and over again. And talk about all the things, the, I think they're called comorbidities, the the things that are also killers that happen in conjunction with alcohol. Mm-hmm. But but that's got to be not even a dotted line. That's got to be a bold, you know, an arrow pointing alcohol, er, cancer, death. Er, was me drawing a line. Yeah, on like a squeaky chip. Yeah. On a, on a dry erase board. Yeah, I got one of those pens, but uh-huh. it's, um, it's got some squeak to it. But it's not just like the cancer. I mean, I think, 
I think the way that cigarette smoking is now, like, their short little commercials that are PSAs that, you know, talk about two, you know, the smoker is talking because they have a hole in their throat right. they have to use that. Or the guy that has had heart disease because he smoked and, you know, some of those things. And all of that sort of kind of gross messaging, I think, also has to happen. But it doesn't have to be, you know, alcohol, cancer, die, because there are so many other, like, comorbidities. So it's just, other things other that you things can get when you drink? Yeah, well, yeah. Like, but there are other, like, reactive things. I mean, everybody knows drinking and driving. You can wreck and kill somebody. Yeah, you know, but, but where did here's that all the truth, though. Or... When, when you're a drinker, once you've done that enough, you that fear's gone. It's sad. It's despicable. But it's also but once like, you've done it a few times, you're like, eh, I'm better than well, other what... people at this, so I'll be okay. Yeah. So I mean, I'm just I'm saying. So everybody knows that piece, but then there are other pieces that people probably aren't linking together, like the side effects. Like, oh, this couple looks like they're a really you know nice marriage on the outside. They leave the party and then. He starts whacking her. She starts beating him because she's the alcoholic and drunk and mad. You know? Yeah. Like, it's those sort of things. Those, those PSAs Domestic are effective. violence and... The ones that they do on the, the cigarette smoking side, like the person with the hole in their throat, those are effective because they're so disgusting and awful. And they do. They make that correlation. So you're right. I mean, it's... So you're... What you're the point you're making is it's got to be more than just alcohol equals death. It's got to be alcohol equals all this yeah, gross, I mean, disgusting like, stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, you know... From Watching domestic the kids struggle violence. in school because it's their parents were up all night okay. because one of them are alcoholics. Like it's got to have an emotional tie too, not just um, you know, like you know. I hate to say, but like the commercials that you know will really put this emotional connection. Oh, I you know was hit by a drunk driver and you know this big fancy lawyer got me a ton of money. You know that's kind of catchy, but they don't really think about the other impacts like. Like the lawyers got like this the person strong a lot of money, arm or the hammer. Yeah, so the, Every the lawyers town got has a this person a lot of money because they know that there's going to be all these lengthy and continuous healthcare issues Medical and, issues, and sure. lack of being able to work for a lot of these people. So it's it's the, that impact and the financial impact that it takes on our community and and how much it ties up our police force dealing with domestic um, issues related to alcohol and ties up the ER. With people being drunk and doing stupid stuff. So the messaging, the PSAs, it needs to tie alcohol to all of these. Yeah, like every every you know Bud Light Michelob problems. Light commercial that runs. Oh, I just worked out and I'm going to have a Michelob Ultra because I deserve that. You know that yeah. 45 calories and carbs yeah. or whatever. Then they need to have a commercial right behind it, like that. Yeah. Some. Oh, and you think you deserve that beer? Here you go. Here's what happens when you have way too many and way too often and you've ruined and wrecked your brain. Yeah. Then It'd be that's great if future. they could get the same actor, you know, with his, like, yeah. scruff beard and his tight abs that goes home and, like, beats on his wife because he had 19 Michelob Ultras. It'd be yeah. great if they could get the same actor, even though, you know, the the for, for people paying for the advertisement would certainly be different. Yeah, exactly. But there needs to be, I think, that correlation, too, of, like, all the side effects of... Yeah alcohol totally agree i wonder i think back you know to that time before we were born before we were born and i wonder if uh, you mean 1970 
No, I'm well. Like yes, you're thinking 50s. I'm thinking fifties. I'm wondering if before <laughs> they started making the more direct correlation between alcohol, lung cancer, de- pardon me, pardon me, cigarettes, lung cancer, death, if they ever did like a cut back thing, like hey. You know, smoke responsibly like all the liquor companies like do now. Response. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I'm selling tequila, but I want you to drink responsibly. Who drinks tequila responsibly? Like, who isn't doing shots when it's tequila? I mean, I'm I know there are some people. but Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but... nobody ever gets out of hand with margaritas. You're right. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, we've got this drink responsibly thing. And we've got this, just in general in our culture, we've got this admiration for moderate drinkers. Like, that is the pinnacle of adultness and awesomeness. They can control can have it. They can two or they three and, it. Yeah, and be done. So I wonder, was there ever a pitch like, hey, don't smoke that whole pack. Just have four or five cigarettes <laughs> today. I don't know. I do watch a lot of, like, historical type. Like, not historical fiction necessarily, but some of it is. Yours is all British, though. They and still smoke. And it's British. <laughs> well, not all of no, them. No, you're right. I, there is, like, a couple. We're not going to name that. drop, but there's one on Amazon that is about a comedian. And, like, half the time they're lighting the cigarette off of the other cigarette, and that was the Chain 60s. smoking, yeah. That was what my dad did in the 80s at this farm shop that he worked at. It was He was the clerk and knew where all the parts were and he let his cigarettes burn in all the time and so he would just go and grab another one and light it take two puffs and then there would go the whole next one lit up because he would just it was weird like well, how much smoke was in there and then i think wow and i like hung out in there sometimes i know well that's probably why you cough through all these episodes <laughs> no it's not post nasal drip don't need to get into that. Yeah. Uh, but I had a customer when I was in sales. I had a customer that did the same thing. I don't know if you remember this, Sherry, but I used to. This is when this is like you know a couple decades ago, and I had to wear a suit to go out and make sales calls. And I would go through my closet and pick out the suit that was most in need of dry cleaning before I would go see this guy. Yeah. You know, this is the one that's been dry cleaned the least frequently, or at least recently, I should say. And I would wear that because he would he would like. One cigarette, chain smoke, light one cigarette off the back of the other. and But he'd have a couple, two or three going at once in different ashtrays sitting around the office. And I would just, like, I couldn't concentrate on what the guy was, the conversation, because I'd be like, there's like three cigarettes burning right now, just sitting in ashtrays burning up. Aren't those expensive? Did he expensive? die of cancer? He, yes, he did. He did. It was yeah. sad. Like, I was only, I had that territory for three years, and he died in the <laughs> middle of me having that territory. And then yeah. I would go and... His son-in-law took over the business, and uh, it always he, the son-in-law didn't smoke, but big shocker here, it just reeked of smoke yeah, everywhere in that yeah, business. Yeah, so I wonder, like, I wonder if you could go back and find, like, TV shows, or you know how, like, in the 50s and 60s, they would have late-night talk shows or daytime talk shows, and they would smoke. Yeah. On that, I wonder if there were ever any medical experts that would say, just try to cut back. Women, when you were pregnant, maybe in your first trimester, yeah. you should just smoke. Just a couple cigarettes just a day. Just a couple. Just to ease that morning sickness. It's, it's crazy. I think sometimes about what would happen if aliens came down to visit Earth and they were like, okay, tell us about, we want to, you know, analyze your intelligence. Tell us a little bit about your culture and your traditions and your habits. And someone was like, oh, you know, they're talking through all the things we do. And they explained alcohol. So it's this thing that's, it's bad enough for you that there's 15 million people that are addicted to it and 3 million people a year die from it. 
But what makes you really cool is if you just have a couple of those a day, you know? That's the pinnacle of society. If you if you take this poison and you just have enough, but not too much. Yeah. It it I mean, it's insanity. Those aliens would get in their ship and be like there's no intelligent, intelligent life, life here. Yeah. We're out of here. Well, cuz then it's like, like here's an idea. Don't a, drink any of the poison. Yeah, a couple drinks to relax. Well, if you know, it messes up, we know it messes up quality of sleep. Yeah. Even a couple of drinks a night messes up your quality of sleep. Well, well think about what it does. And it sets you up for this routine and habit and you act like it's which oh, is something I do every night. Well, if you were to take it away, you would be like missing it. Yeah. You know? So that's a problem. So then that's, that's that that's really is a problem, yeah. right? Like, Even if you only do two or three People that say they're gray area drinkers or, you know, I just drink a couple a night and then I realized I was... Like they like realized, hey, I really was looking forward to that and I became anxious when it was almost that yeah. time. Like that is exactly what the addiction is and you can't just do some deep breathing and... Lay in bed and, you know, just be quiet and silent for five minutes to relax. you got to have your couple drinks because you deserve it. Well, and think about what it actually does for for moderate drinkers who are all into it and are proud of their Wine their consumption and well, their craft beer. What, what does alcohol actually do? Like, what's the buzz? The feeling of the buzz? Is that your brain cells dying? That, dying or being warped or just not functioning properly. Like, the buzz is inhibiting... Proper function. I mean, you might as well suck on a tailpipe. It'll do the same thing for you. So the idea that we admire and, you know, respect and look up to moderate drinking in this country is just, it's it's laughable. It's laughable. I'm sure there's an amount of Drano that's healthy to drink too, but I don't want to find out. I, I just don't understand why we pick this one poison and we're like, oh, it's so awesome to, to drink a little of this one poison. It's kind of like, yeah, I think there was a... There's a play called Arsenic and Old Lace where these women were just slowly poisoning people that were in their bed and breakfast, or maybe that was I'm familiar. Like I know the name, but I've heard. I was in the play, but it was so long ago. You were in the play, yeah, in high school, but I don't remember. They had Um, lace when you were in high school. Sorry, I'm just trying to be like our kids. Well, and again, not very funny, just like our kids. Okay, good. So that's one of the things you know. We've got to tie alcohol, not alcoholism, alcohol. To all of the negative impacts. And we got to do it over and over and over and over again. But the other thing that we've got to do to cure alcoholism is we've got to talk more about it. There's got to be more people coming out about it. And I think about, we've got a, a good friend. She's been on a few of the episodes of the Untoxicated Podcast. Her name is Debbie Shear. And she did an event that we hosted. We had her as a, a stand-up comedian to entertain our guests she did a fabulous job. She's very funny. You should check her out. Uh, just Google Debbie Shear. Debbie Shear Speaks is, I think, her website. Debbie Shear that Speaks. Right. Yeah, dot com. But in addition to being sober, she's been sober for a couple of years now. She is also, she's a lesbian. And she talked about that. She told a joke that I want to share with everybody. She has told me many times that it was way easier coming out gay than it is to to come out as sober. And, you know, the, the joke is when you, when you come out as sober, everyone wants to like get up in your business and fix that for you. Like that's a, that's a solvable problem. Oh, you're sober. You shouldn't really be sober. Let's talk about it. And she compares that to 
like, what if that was the way it was when she had come out gay? What if she told everyone that she was a lesbian and, and people were like, oh, you know, I understand that you don't want to have penis all the time, but maybe you should just have penis on Friday and Saturday nights. Just have penis on the weekends. <laughs> don't, if, if you think you're gay, just, you know, maybe you're not gay. Just have a little bit of penis. You don't have to, you don't just have to go back. cold turkey. Just cut back on the penis. Just cut back on the penis. So, yeah. Don't don't have so much penis. Stop after two penises. Mm-hmm. Don't have that third or fourth penis. Just just stop after two. So I love that joke. It's hilarious, but it's so true. When she puts it in that context, when she when she did come out to the world that she was gay, nobody gave her any alternative suggestions for how she could keep her heterosexuality going <laughs> when she didn't want to. Yeah, they're just like great. That if that's who you are, that's who you are. But when you come out as sober, you know. There's this this feeling like, ooh, this person's broken. They have crappy willpower. How can we help them to not have to give up the poison? Who would ever want to give up the poison? It's it's so it's the pinnacle of existence. Can't you find a way to keep the poison in your life without giving it up completely? And so I just think the more we talk about it, the more open the conversation is, the better. And I think you know, there's one more kind of comparison. To coming when we talk about coming out, coming out as homosexual versus coming out as an alcoholic, um, you know, there was a time during our lifetime when uh, people who were gay didn't come out. I mean, they you know the term was stayed in the closet, right? Mm-hmm. Think about how painful that is. Now, I want to be very very clear. I'm not in any way comparing sexual orientation to a disease, which is what alcoholism is. So I'm not saying that if, if, if you're gay or you have any other sexual orientation other than heterosexual, that there's, there's anything wrong with you. I don't in any way believe that. You know, we are who we are as humans. I'm 1,000% supportive of anyone for having any orientation they want to have. I'm kind of stumbling through this because I want to make sure that I don't say the wrong words. But... When when that was viewed by our society as kind of an affliction, yeah, and, a and deviant people, behavior yeah, and I mean, it's marriage has only been legalized for a couple of years yeah. now, and even that's fought in some the, places, yeah, right? And the just the I don't know, I just get like throw up in my mouth when I, I think about how the people were treated and have had to hide and shame, and the Nazis were killing and anyone who was gay like they were oh my god you yeah. went back to the nazis wow well, i mean it's you know because it's been around forever just like alcoholism has yeah. been around forever so when it was not cool to talk about it and you know if that was your orientation think about how awful that must have been especially like if you're a teenager if you're lonely. a young person lonely isolating you've got this thing that's important to you that as we said is not an affliction but you're made to feel like it's an affliction yeah and you know you're you've got no one you can talk about it you can't can't be out front about it it that's just such an awful feeling and that's where we are today in this day and age 2020 with alcohol i mean how despicable is that if you are addicted to one of the world's most highly addictive substances or if you are married or the ch- child of someone who is addicted to one of the world's most highly addictive substances, that's a secret. We got to be hush-hush about that. Don't tarnish the family crest. 
Don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass anybody else. That's not for outward discussion. It's really, I mean, it's despicable. And so the freedom to talk about this, just like we talk about cancer, you know, not many people, I I think there are some people that get embarrassed by a cancer diagnosis, but I would say the vast majority of people, if they contract cancer, they want all the support they can get and they talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it was just a few decades ago, like, you know, people were still kind of hush hush about cancer and this, you know, they wouldn't really talk about it so much. I think that, I think that we're typically kind of generally moving to a more open society where we're not hiding those things. Cause I know like my mother's generation, like you didn't talk about cancer out loud. I mean, like, Oh, they're sick, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's that, you know, kind of whispery, like when an elderly person got sick and, you know, and, and it's just, and then just with accepting people as they come, like we're just generally becoming more open. I don't think it's because like we don't have any more like decorum. Like we're like, Ooh, let's not talk about it. Cause it's inappropriate. I think that we're just because people are in pain in a lot of ways with different issues. So I don't see why alcoholism cannot become one of those sort of situations that there's a lot of people in pain because of alcohol just like there were a lot of people that were in pain and lonely with being homosexual, you know, and being gay, like, was so shameful that we can't bring it out in the open more. I don't disagree, but it's not happening yet, I guess is all I'm I'm saying. I mean, it, it's I a lot. I feel like it started a little bit. Yeah. I it's feel like it, starts, it started, okay, it started, I feel like, a little bit with, like, women. Because it was okay for women to say, oh, I think I'm a gray area drinker. You know, yeah. that term. And... And definitely, I think, because for women, because we typically are not, you know, we're usually the caregiver in the family, we're not always typically the the alcoholic in the family. But I feel like that made it okay, because there were so many of the mommy wine clubs and book clubs that was all about drinking wine. There and were, it, there are. and Well, there are, but then, there's, then there was, like, some group of people, you know in different pockets and neighborhood around us where they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm a gray area drinker, so I'm not doing that anymore. And they're kind of being a little bit more open about it. I think it's possible that it's just because we are in it. We, this is what we do for a living that you are exposed to more people that are talking about it than really are. I think it's still pretty darn hush hush out there. Now there's a lot of celebrities that have come out, but you don't find any celebrities that come out and say, I don't drink because I know that that's a poison and I've never, I've decided to never drink and my, I'm so su- successful in my career because alcohol has never been a part of my life. It's the ones that get outed more or less. Like the party boys, like Robert Downey Jr. For instance, I just listened to a podcast with him that was excellent. And I, I give him a ton of credit for, I mean, he's talking about the success, not, not in a braggy way, but he talks about the success that he's gained after he went through all of his stuff, which includes some serious jail time. Mm -hmm. And now he's sober and, you know, he couldn't reach the pinnacle of success that he has with these, are they Marvel or are they DC? I don't know. The the comic book movies, Iron Man. He couldn't have reached that pinnacle success without his sobriety. So there are people that are, that are tying those two things together, wild success and not consuming alcohol. 
But they're doing it as kind of, hey, I was forced into this corner. My life became unmanageable. I got the help I needed, and here I am. There's no, like, forward thinking. There's no, hey, why would you start doing that to begin with? Like, we're just not there yet as a society. This is like, like I smoked two packs a day for 10 years, and I got lung cancer, but it was treated, and I recovered, and now I'm never going to smoke again. That You know, that's great if that happens for you, but how about... You know, where's the messaging about let's not smoke to begin with? So I just, there just needs to be more. Wouldn't you agree with that? There needs to be a ton more. Yeah. You mean like education in in the schools earlier on? But that would be a hard place because the parents are drinking. Yeah. There needs to be preventative. There needs to be openness among people who are drinking. There needs to be openness among the loved ones of the drinkers who are suffering. I mean, so many people don't understand how much pain and suffering there is living with an alcoholic. I mean, you've been through it, Sherry. It was isolating for you. You thought you were the only one. You were helping protect the family secret. You didn't run around telling everyone that your husband was an alcoholic. You you kept that hidden just as well as I did for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we see because of all the conversations and the, the relationships that we have with people that are in that situation, it's Literally millions and millions of people are going through the same thing you went through. And so it's just sad that just like being gay used to be this isolating, stay in the closet thing. Now we've got all the loved ones of alcoholics smashed into the closets separately so that they can't share the pain and share the story. So I'm I'm just convinced that the cure for this epidemic is we've got to tie alcohol, not alcoholism, alcohol to the pain that it causes, to the damage, the physical, mental damage that it causes. And we've got to tie, and we've got to talk about it more. We've got to come out. We've got to stop telling people to just have penis on Friday and Saturday night. We've Mm got to say no penis. Just weekend penis. No penis. Okay. That's Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Debbie. Yeah, so I I talk a lot also about being a high-functioning alcoholic, and I write about that. And that distinction frustrates some people. You know, traditional AA people will say, all alcoholics are the same. Stop trying to elevate yourself by calling yourself a high-functioning alcoholic. But I think that the the term high-functioning alcoholic is really important because all it speaks to is the starting point for me. Everyone who uh, develops an alcohol addiction is going in the same direction, progressively down. Your behavior is progressing downward. And I think if, if you have a rough start to life, if there's alcoholism all around you, if you don't have moral guidance, for instance, if you're not given a leg up educationally, if you start at a a a sadly low point and then you develop alcoholism the trip from where you start to the gutter to 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 living under a bridge is a really short trip and so you don't have time it's like flying a, a plane two feet off the ground you don't have time to pull up when you start you know to lose control whereas the reason i make the distinction with high functioning alcoholism the only difference between me and the person living in the gutter or the person living under the bridge is i had time to pull up because of my starting point. I'm not bragging about that. I'm saying I was blessed. I am very, very fortunate. But I also think it's a big deal because, you know, when you when you start at 
in kind of this middle class place where alcohol is, you know, revered as this sign of success and manliness and, you know, just adulthood. You, you have, you know, the, the, the structure all around you, whether it's your job, your friends, your neighbors, the structure around you is such that drinking is revered and um, everyone does it, but alcoholism isn't revered and everyone does it. So by, by like I said, starting point, when I started in this kind of middle class upbringing, typical Americana stuff, you know, um, when I, when you and I suffered and we went through alcoholism and then when I came out and started talking about it, coming out was a big, big deal because in our corner of the universe, being an alcoholic was not okay. It was not acceptable. It was not the norm. There weren't, you know, there were alcoholics everywhere, but they're all hidden just like I was. So the idea that after I came out that I would go back and start drinking again, that literally is impossible. You know what I'm saying? Am I, am I explaining that very well? Yeah, I think you're explaining it well. The, when, when I was trying to get sober and I was quiet about it, I relapsed a bunch of times for a whole decade. I tried to get sober and then I relapsed. And I tried to get sober and I relapsed. And you, you know, the kids as they got older, my parents, your mom, your sister, my sister, that those were the only humans on earth that knew that I was trying to get sober and then failing. And even even with them, I, you know, did a pretty good job of gaslighting. Oh, I changed my mind. I'm drinking again. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I'm just, you know, not drinking as much. Everything's going to be fine. And, you know, everyone kind of let me get away with that. But that was such a small little inner circle. Once I came out to everybody and said, not only am I not drinking anymore, but here's why. I'm not drinking anymore because I'm an alcoholic and I can't control it. And here's what it's done in my personal life. There was no turning back. None. And, and so this concept of Matt, why do you call yourself a high-functioning alcoholic? Why aren't you know you're, you're no different than anyone else? Absolutely agree. I am no different than the person living in the gutter. I I just was fortunate with a different starting point, and 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 admitting alcoholism is a game changer in my life and where I am. And it's that way. But here's the thing: it's that way for the majority of Americans. I mean, the majority of Americans are still middle class, right? I mean, that's kind of where most people live. They get up every day. They go to work. You know, they might have a vacation every year. Maybe not now in COVID, but, um, you know, that's where most of the alcohol problem exists. It doesn't all just exist in the gutter like we think it is. It's in your, you know, there's probably three alcoholics on your street and you don't know it because they're hiding it. And so once, once... People like us, people like us is a terrible, I, I don't want to make this a, a us or versus them. I don't want to make it a, a class warfare kind of thing. But, you know, when, when normal folks come out and tell everyone they know that they're an alcoholic and this is the danger and the, the, the tragedy that happened, there's no going back. They can't start drinking again. So when I talk about the two things that we need to cure alcoholism being, you know, tie alcohol to the the devastation and we need people to come out it's 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 a big deal 
it's not only a big deal because then society will be talking about it, but it's a big deal because that person will, you know, have have no option to go back and start drinking again. Because it would be a huge drop in their personal standards to do so. Like if I started drinking again, I'd lose all my friends. Not that they aren't loving, supportive people, but they'd be like, Matt, come on, man. That, that was a train wreck. You can't do that anymore. I, I couldn't just ease back into society as a drinker. We'd have to move. Well, not we. I would because you wouldn't come with me. <laughs> I mean, you're laughing, but you wouldn't. No, no. Like if you started drinking now, I would be like, well, and you would have no, you have zero credibility. Exactly. I mean, you would have to like just become a different person really. Yeah. Like move away and become a different person. Go into the witness protection program. <laughs> Because it would be such a huge, huge drop in standards for me to go back on it now. You know, Robin Williams, who I love, he used to talk about how alcoholism is defined as when your behavior deteriorates faster than your ability to drop your own personal standards. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that that's true. That's what it's like. Like when you're, you say, I, I'll never drink in the morning, and then you find yourself drinking in the morning. I'll or never I'll never drink, drink alone. On a work day or alone, and then you find yourself drinking alone. You're you're making accommodations for this disease faster than you can adjust your own standards for yourself. It's a really good way to look at it. But if you are a norm, I'm, I'm struggling to find a good way to describe it. I guess just middle average. class. If you're an average American with a bunch of you know nice friends who are upstanding citizens. And you tell them of the turmoil alcohol is causing your life, and you're not going to drink anymore. You can't start drinking again. That that option is off the table, and that's why the coming out is so important. Not just for the overall cultural societal, let's spread the word about this thing, but also for you specifically. You are done drinking because you've been you've you've planted a stake in the ground. You're going to have more people than just a few hold you accountable. And these are also going to, your friends, but I think your friends are going to be a lot more honest than like your family. Yeah. No, it's true. I, I think that your friends would be able to call you out and be like, what the hell are you doing? Like you put In everybody cases, through shit true. and then you've almost wrecked your marriage. You know, I've seen you act like an asshole time and time again when you're drinking. Now you tell me and you, it's painful to watch you suffer through, you know... And then you're doing it again. Like, trust me, if it was a friend of mine, I would certainly say that and be like, you know, I want to love and support you, but I cannot love and support you through a, a terrible, like, life choice. Just like, you know, if your friend just decided that they were going to start meth as a, you know, as a new habit, you know. As or, a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're... You're nuts. Be like, what? So, so I think you need to get those, that accountability and the more people that know, the more people that are going to hold, that you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to live up to a standard that you've put out there too, because you don't want to disappoint. And I think that's important too, is like you set out this person that you want to be, you sent it out into the world, this message, and you have to be accountable for it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having accountability or in a better lack of term is like an image to uphold. Yeah. Like, you have an image of, like, I struggled through alcoholism. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to put my family and myself through pain. 
I'm needing the support and the accountability. And now I have this image to uphold. And I have other people that are going to lose respect for me if I start drinking again. Yeah. It's true. I mean, because I think that... I don't think it's that you have to worry so much about what others think of you. Like in that sort of selfish sense. Because you have to love yourself. But I also think that we also do have a really big need to have people be proud of us. Yeah. Have outsiders and be proud of us. Outsiders be proud of you and now shouldn't, be respected. Shouldn't we be shouldn't our pride in ourselves be enough? I mean that's what that's what all the, you know, social media mental health stuff will say, right? Need well, I think because we can mess up our own image so much with our negative self-talk and yeah. inability to see ourselves for who we really are sometimes. So our reputation is important. I would hate to say it's a reputation, but an image and a persona. I feel like reputation kind of has like, that's just hearsay, but oh, okay, reputation is hearsay and that's the projected sort of falsification of who you are, but image and persona is more like this is really who I want to be this is who I am the these are the things that you are. Yeah. yeah like like I think that I think definitely like self love and and what you feel about yourself but I think there that we have so much mixed messages and that's just got on generally generationally to people that that we don't really even know what we think about ourselves half the time yeah. like I think this generation is of, you know, upcoming young adults are figuring that out. Yeah. And not letting negative standards that they've grown up with. So fighting through all the worry about all of that stuff and coming out anyway, and then coming out as an alcoholic, that's hard. But, you know, coming out as the loved one of an alcoholic is, I think, ten times harder. For a couple of reasons. One is, it like we talked about, it's not just your story. What Jane did last week was big and bold and brash because she's not just telling the world about the issue she faces. She's telling the world about the issue she and her husband faces. Their family. And their yeah. family. And I, I just think it's huge and it's so hard. And just like we've got celebrities that are coming out more and more and talking about alcoholism and recovery, that's where we've got to get with the loved ones too. And we're not even close. There are no loved ones. I mean, there are people that have, you know, their spouse has died of alcoholism and they'll talk about it or they've separated, you know, a little bit, but for the most part, there's just nothing out there about people that are talking about how alcoholism affects the inner workings of a family and, and the secondhand drinkers, the loved ones. And it's so much harder, but that's, but it's also really, really important. And that's where we need to get. That's, that's a, a point we need to reach of comfort talking about it because it ties in. I mean, we talked at the outset that just like cigarettes, we had to tie cigarettes to death, cigarettes to lung cancer and death. And we have to do that for alcohol now. We have to tie alcohol to the, not alcoholism, alcohol to the destruction of the family because it's a big, big part. I mean, I don't know what the statistics are on the number of divorces that are directly related to alcohol, 
But whatever that statistic is, you can triple it comfortably and say that's how many where alcohol was really a factor. Mm-hmm. Because even the moderate drinkers turn into assholes after a couple of two or three drinks and then they can't get along with their spouses and then the divorce happens and, you know. Or they say something rude and to their children and then that affects their children. Exactly. Like, yeah. I think Lisa Fredericks and Devils is like dubbed it as secondhand drinker. Yeah. Or the hangover that that you go in with the next day and then you're just a loser at work and you mess up an order or you know, and then it's just so much more problematic yeah. for people that just you work with effect. than Yeah. It's just like this slow spread that you don't even recognize that's there. So talking about this stuff as the loved one is even harder, but it's at least as important. Now, I want to say, you know, so I'm big on this recovering out loud, talking about stuff, being open. And I I get, you know, a good bit of angry feedback, even from people that are huge supporters of ours, even from people that we're close with, that we work with, you know, that we've gotten to know really well. There's this frustration, and I want to be very clear and say, I get it. I get it. You know, there are a lot of people that are just private people, you know, full stop. Not private about their alcoholism, not private about their spouse's alcoholism. They're just private. They don't want their, all of their laundry, clean or dirty, aired. Mm -hmm. And that's entirely a, a justifiable position to take. You know, some people describe themselves as introverts and say, I, you know, I'm not comfortable talking about things good, bad, or ugly. I I just, I want you to respect my privacy. And I get that. And some of them, I think, feel like I'm pushing and pushing and pushing. And I'll get, you know, from time to time, I'll get someone that says, you know, I'm not like you, Matt. I don't, I don't want everyone to know my stuff. Um, I get it. I 100% get it. I, I mean, I get that the fact that you and I talk like this and that we publish books about our relationship and about our sex life, you know, for some people that's like vanity to the point where they, they just think it's gross. Like, why would we do that? And arrogance, like and arrogance. Yes. Who wants to hear about your stupid sex life? You're absolutely right. I know you don't want to hear about our sex life. (laughs) So I get that. Um, and it, it does. It makes, like I said, people that are close to us, sometimes I can tell they're angry about it. Like, I'm just private. I don't want to I don't want to talk about alcoholism, but I also don't want to talk about, you know, anything else. So when I push and push and push on this coming out thing being important, you know, I, there's a bigger, like, there's a bigger thing going on. It's not just about my privacy and Sherry's privacy, and it's not just about your privacy and your spouse's privacy, it's about changing the culture and please don't be angry with me um if you're not there you're not there and i get it i get it but i just got to keep pushing because we've got to get some people to be there and you know for a lot of people it's baby steps right sherry like you know if you see something that someone else has posted about alcoholism or about the challenges of alcohol on social media repost it you know, start out, just like it. I, I think it's hilarious. We talked earlier this week, you know, I post stuff. I hate social media, hate, hate, hate social media, but I do it every day because it's part of 
part of being in this, right? And so I'll post stuff about alcoholism and the reactions I get, you know, are, you know, whatever, a moderate, a moderate number of reactions. And then I'll post a picture of one, our, one of our kids and boom, a thousand, not a thousand, but a hundred comments and a hundred, you know, reactions. Yeah, just and, because you repost something or you like something doesn't always associate I'm in this. But like, that's what people about, think. But that's what they think. Like, you can be like, you could be drinking a glass of wine at dinner and you're having it alone and you're scrolling through social media and somebody posts something about alcohol that has maybe rang true for you. Maybe you grew up in an alcoholic family you know maybe that's why you're eating dinner alone because maybe, you're like or maybe you're struggling I, a little yeah. bit yourself even yeah. as you're drinking that yeah. glass so of wine then you like repost it or like it it doesn't mean oh they've got the secret you know but that's what everybody thinks so that's what i'm saying when when it, we talk about coming out you don't have to go from zero to 100 miles an hour you don't have to go from nothing to telling your full story on you know the today show right you can you can ease into it and by easing into it yeah get like jump on social media and find some conversation about alcoholism well, I mean, I think, and, and, well, and join the conversation. Well, what needs to happen is we can't let, you know, this next generation of people grow up. Like we have to, can't just continue on the way we're continuing on with acting like, you know, alcohol and marijuana are just fabulous. Yeah. You could be 21 and then you can start ruining your life because you know that nobody waits till they're 21. Right. You know, so we've got to have a leg up. So getting it kind of, you know, putting the shame on the alcohol and the distributors and, you know. Yeah. There's got to be more conversation. Yeah. And start with baby steps. Start with just a little... Social media interaction. If you're not in, if you're like me and you hate social media and you aren't forced to use it, even though you hate it, t- tell a friend. Just tell a friend what you're going through. Whether whether it's your drinking that's problematic or the drinking of your loved one, just have a private conversation with a friend. You'll be relieved. You, I mean, we hear it all the time. People talk about how terrified they are to have a conversation, and then once they do, it's like a million pounds got lifted off their shoulder. So find someone that you trust, have that conversation. You know, here's an idea. I got a good one. If if you want to ease in to being open about joining the conversation about alcohol, review a book. Go on Amazon, <laughs> find a book. Like there's this new book called Sober Evolution that's really good. <laughs> And, uh, you know, buy it. Is that the number one new release for it, alcohol and recovery? It is. <laughs> is that what for the moment, is? it is. Yeah, jump, buy that. The Kindle version is only $10. Buy that and review it so that you are a verified reviewer. And I, I actually, we're saying this in jest, but I, I, I did see that one of the reviews that the book got, uh, one of the early reviews was from someone that I know is is not cool with being really open about life in general, not just alcoholic life. And this person put a review out there and I thought that's really cool because this person doesn't know who's going to stumble upon their name. And, you know, so that's, is there, is there a high degree of likelihood that one of their neighbors is going to find, you know, their name on Amazon review review. for this one, one out of a zillion books that are on Amazon? No, not very likely, but it was still, it's a baby step. It's moving toward openness. And I'm very proud of this individual. 
And then, you know, there's also groups out there. So this would be a great time for us to mention that if you want to if you want to talk about this, if you want to be with people that are suffering just like you are and connect and communicate, and maybe that'll lead to a further coming out, but you want to start in private, start with a private group like our, for the loved ones of alcoholics, our Echoes of Recovery group that you can check out at echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com. Or if you're on the other side of the street and you're the, the drinker that's trying to find a way into permanent sobriety or even into early sobriety, check out shoutsobriety.com. And these are private groups where the communication can get started and no one has to know outside of the group. And Just then, because it's named shout doesn't mean you have to go shout it out. You well, we're going to encourage you to shout. But you're, you can still be private That's starting right. out. We're going to encourage you to a, shout eventually. Yes. That's the thing. Again, I get this anger, anger sometimes. people. I think people are like, gosh, you're just pushing and pushing and pushing for me to come out and I'm not ready. I get that. All this stuff takes a ton of time. All of it does. Every aspect of recovery takes a ton of time. So I would... I it would, took you 10 years. took me 10 years. You know, really. And then a year of permanent of, sobriety on the tail end of that before I so came years, out. Yeah. And even then I was scared to death. Yeah. So, yeah, like... Let's be patient with each other, but let's at least move forward in these baby steps because conversation's got to change. This, you know, the work that you and I are doing, Sherry, it isn't about recovery one case at a time. It's about prevention. Ultimately, it's about prevention. We love the people that we work with and we love helping people recover and we love furthering our own recovery Mm -hmm. through communication with people. But ultimately, this has got to be about fixing this problem, not not just solving it, not not putting fires out one at a time. Right, because a lot of the people that we work with, they have families, mm-hmm. you know, and their families have, are going to have families. So if we're just going to pass it on down the line. Yeah, so we got to break that cycle. And yeah, baby. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you, Matt. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't think you've ever thanked me at the end of an episode before. What are you thanking me for? That we didn't have to talk about sex? Yeah, I guess so. You and did, that I didn't cry. You you semi-teared up, but you didn't cry. I don't remember what we were talking about, but you got close. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening uh, to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. For my wife, Sherry, I am Matt Salis, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks.